Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from Wildwood Ways by Winthrop Packard. Written in 1909, this story will take you on a magical journey through the woods where you'll meet many of the animals that live within it. It reminds me of the many stories that I read when I was younger and I think will be a perfect bedtime story to help you drift off to sleep. My name is Teddy and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. I'm truly honoured that you have chosen this podcast to help you fall asleep. There are several listeners that I would like to thank this week. Firstly, thank you to John Summers for becoming a $5 Patreon Your monthly contribution is the greatest compliment and helps me to continue bringing out more episodes. Thank you to Podbean listener Iki for your ongoing support. Thank you to CastBox listener Omerta. I'm glad the podcast is helping out. Thank you to Lynette for your lovely message on Instagram. I'm so glad the sleep stories are working for you. And finally... Thank you to iTunes listeners JGS1379 and also to JSNE87896. I love how much the podcast is helping each of you. I enjoy reading these reviews at the beginning of the show as it helps me send gratitude to everybody who has taken the time to leave a comment, review or try and contact me through the website. For all other listeners out there who find the podcast beneficial, please leave a review and comment in your podcast app. Even one sentence helps out. If you would like, you can also say hello at boyeatersleep.com where you can support the podcast. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at boyeatersleep. You can also find me on Facebook by searching for Boy to Sleep podcast. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. Snugging Down Days Today came with a flashing sun that looked through crystal clear atmosphere into the eyes of a keen northwest wind that had dried up all of November's fog and left no trace of moisture to hold its keenness and touch you with its chill. It was one of those days when the cart rode from the north side to the south side of a pine wood leads you from early December straight to early May. On the one side is a nipping and eager air. On the other side, softness and a smell of spring. 
It is more than the difference of a hundred miles in latitude, of which market gardeners say exists between the north and south side of a board fence. It is like having thousand league boots and passing from Labrador to Louisiana at a stride. On the north side of a strip of woodland, which borders the boggy outlet to Ponkapogue Pond, lies a great mowing field, and here among the sere stubble, I stand in the pale shadow of deciduous trees, and face the wind coming over the rolling uplands, as it might come across Arctic barrens, singing down upon the northerly outposts of the timberline. On the south side, the muskrat teepees rise, from blue water at the bog-edge-like peaks of Tenerife, from the sunny seas that border the Canary Isles. Such contrasts you may find on many an early December day, when walking in the rare field brightness of the open air is like moving about in the heart of a diamond. Yet even the big mowing field shows unmistakable signs of having been snugged down for the winter. Here and there a tree, still afloat in its brown undulating ocean, seems to be scudding for the shelter of the forest under bare poles, while the stout white oaks lie to near the coast under double-reefed courses, the brown-leaf sails still holding to the lower yards, while all the spars above have been blown bare. The woodchuck paths that not long ago led from one clover patch to another, and then onto well-hidden holes, lie pale and untravelled while their fat owners are snugged down below in warm burrows, with their noses folded in under their forepaws. Tradition has it that they will wake in a warm spell in midwinter, and peer out of their burrows to see what the prospect of spring may be. Hence, the 2nd of February is not only Candlemas Day, but Groundhog Day in rural tradition, the day on which the woodchuck is fabled to appear at the mouth of his underground, retreat and look for weather signs, but I don't know anyone who has ever seen him do it. You may often find skunk tracks in the snow or mud during a good midwinter thaw, but I have never seen those of the woodchuck then, and I am quite confident that he stays snugged down the winter through. Scattered here and there, about the borders of the field, are groups of dwarf goldenrod still in full leaf and flower, so far as form goes. The crowded terminal panicles of bloom bend gracefully towards earth like stout ostrich plumes, and I think they are more beautiful in the feathery russet of crowded seed masses than they were 
in their September finery of gold and yellow. Their stems are lined with leaves still, but these have lost their sombre green to put on the colour of deep seal brown. It is as if they had donned their sealskin cloaks for winter wear. But all these clumps are doubly protected in another way, not for their own sake, for they are but dead stems, but for the birds who will need their seeds when the snows later in the month shall have covered the ground far out from their reach. All the autumn the winds have been whirling dry leaves back and forth, and each clump has trapped them cunningly, till the slender stems that might otherwise be buried are broken by the snow and reinforced on all sides by elastic leaves that will hold them bravely up. Here is an open larder, a free lunch counter for the goldfinches and chickadees of next January. Here they are glean and glean again, for except they be plucked by eager beaks, some of these seeds will not let go of their grip on the receptacles till spring rains loosen them, and the ground is fit for their sowing. Everywhere in wood and pasture, the numbers of seeds and plants and trees that are thus held waiting the winter gleaners are incomputable, nor will these need to seek them on the plant itself, for little by little, as the winter winds come and go, they will loose their hold and scatter themselves about as we scatter crumbs for the snowbirds and sparrows. Here are the birches, for instance, holding fast still to their wealth. If bursting spring buds could be grey-brown in colour instead of sage-green, we well might think the trees had another almanac than our own, and that with them it was late April, for wherever the trees are silhouetted against the light, we see every twig decorated with new life. It is new life indeed, but not that of spring leaves. Every tree has a thousand cones, and every cone is packed with tiny seeds, about a central core of stiff fibre that is like a fine wire. Holding the seeds tight in their places are little flat scales, having an outline like that of conventionalised fleur-de-lis, or somewhat like tiny flying birds. The whole is so keyed by the tip that as they hang head down it is possible to dislodge only the topmost scales and seeds. A very vigorous shake of the tree sends a cloud of these flying, but when you look at the tree you find that not a thousandth part of it has been stored or dispensed. When the midwinter snows lie deep all about, the paymaster wind will requisition these stores, 
as needed for the tiny creatures of the wood and scatter them wide on the white surface till it will look as if spiced by the confectioner as well does the forest take care of its own. The Lady Amina of the Arabian Tale, picking single grains of rice at the banquet might not seem to dine more daintily. The spring will be near at hand, when the last of these birch seeds will have been dispersed. Thus innumerable granaries are stored the woodland and pasture through, so lightly locked that all may pilfer, and so abundantly filled, pressed down and running over, that there shall be no lack in either quantity or variety. Far other and stranger forms of winter guarding forethought are to be seen all about the big mowing field, and in the coppices that divide it from the open marsh and the pond store, if we will but look for them. In many places has witchery been at work, as well as forethought, and strange and unaccountable things have been brought to pass that tiny creatures may be kept safe until spring. Here and there, among the goldenrod stems, you will find one that is swollen to the size of a hickory nut, a smooth globe which is merely the stem expanded from the diameter of a toothpick to three quarters of an inch. When I split this bulb with my knife, I find it made up of tough pith shot through, with the growing fibres of the plant, but having a tiny hollow in the centre. Here, snugly ensconced and safe from the all cold and storms, is a lazy creature so fat that he looks like a globular ball of white wax. Only when I poke him does he squirm, and I can see his mouth move in protest. His fairy language is too fine for my ear, tuned to rough accents of the great world. But if I am any judge of countenances, he is saying, Why, damn sir, how dare you intrude on my privacy? After all, he has a right to be indignant, for I have not only wrecked his winter home, but turned him out unclothed and unprotected, to die in the first nip of the shrewish wind. Untainted, he would have leisurely enlarged his pith hole by eating away its substance and, in the spring, have bored himself a cunning hole, whence he might emerge, spread tiny wings and enjoy the sunshine and soft air of summer, his own transformations from egg to grub, from grub to gallfly, are curious enough, yet stranger yet, and far more savouring of magic, is the growth of his winter home. By what hocus-pocus the mother that laid him there made the slender stem of the goldenrod grow, 
about him this luxurious home is known only to herself and her kindred, and until I learn to hear and translate the language which the grub used in swearing at me when I broke into his home, it is probable that I shall still remain ignorant. But let us leave Labrador and let ourselves loose upon Louisiana, for we may do it in five minutes. The oaks and the pines, the maples, the birches, and the shrubs, of the close-set thickets which guard the bog edge, I know not what straining and restraining power they have upon this keen wind, but when it has filtered through them, it has lost its shrewishness, and, meeting the warm embrace of the low-hung sun, bears aromas of spring. It is as if wood violets had shot his garments full of tiny odours of April as he traversed the wood, or perhaps the perpetual magic of life which seems to well up from swampy woodland, had seized upon him as it seizes upon all that passes, and made him the bearer of its potency. Across the bog to the pond outlet, through the spring's soft atmosphere, lies a slender road, lined with thickets, where I do not wonder the Calisamia Promethea the spice bush silk moth likes to spin his own winter snuggery and dangle in the soft air till the real spring taps at his silken doorway and soft rain lift the latch and let him out. Not far away, among the leaves that lie ankle deep among the shrubbery that skirts the hickories and oaks, are the cocoons of Actius Luna. Among them, shed from the oaks, are those of Telia Polyphemus, and if I seek, it is not difficult to find the big pouch, where Sonia Cecropia waits for the same call. Some May evening, there shall be a brave awakening in the glades, and on the borders of the bog, it shall be as if the tans and pinky purples and rose and yellow of the finest autumn leaves took wing again in the spring twilight and floated about at will, owing nothing to the winds. And then the lunar moth, the fairy queen of dusk, all clad in daintiest green trimmed with ermine and seal and ostrich plumes, shall come among them and reign by right of such beauty as the night rarely sees. All this sprung from the papery cocoons swung in the roadside bushes, or tumbled neglectfully among the shifting autumn leaves in the tangle at the roots of the wild smilax. Here is magic for you, indeed of the kind that the parlour magician wont to supply, frail and beautiful things grown at a breath, almost from obscure and trivial sources. 
Yet I seem to find a more potent, if less spectacular witchery, in what has been done to the willows that here and there grow in the thicket that borders the slender bog road. Some winged sprite has touched their branch tips with fairy wand and whispered a potent word to them, and the willows have obeyed and grown cones. There are an inch or more in length, and as perfect with scales as those of the pines up in the wood. But there are no seeds of willow life in them. Instead, there is at the core a orange-yellow minute grub, the larva of a fly that stung the willow tip last spring, and stinging it, laid her egg therein. That the egg should become a grub, and that later the grub in turn should become a fly, is nothing in the way of magic, or that it should fatten in the meanwhile on willow fibre. The necromancy comes in the fact that every willow tip that is made the home of this grub should thenceforth forsake all its recognised methods of growth and produce a cone for the harbouring of the grub during the winter's cold. There are many varieties of these gall-producing insects, the yolks that still hold spherical attachments to their leaves, produced in the same way. Look among your small fruits and you will find the blackberry stems, swollen and tuberculous, from a similar cause, and full of squirming life. It is all necromancy out the same book, the book of the witchery of insects that makes human life and growth seem absurdly simple by comparison. The snugging down of the open world in preparation for winter is full of such tales, and he who runs through the woods on such a day in December may read them. Standing in the spring-like warmth at the pond outlet, and looking down the line where bog meets water, I can count the dark peaks of the muskrat teepees, receding like a coast range toward the other shore. The muskrats have built higher than common this year, because I fancy they expect much water having had it low all summer and fall. Some of them are half as high as I am, and must have cost tremendous labour in tearing out the marsh roots and sods and collecting them thus in pyramidal form. All the morning the marsh grass billowed and the water sparkled one to another about their houses and if you listened to the grass, you might hear its fine little sibilant song, a soft susurrus of words whose only consonant is S, set to a sleepy swing. It is a song that seems to harmonise with the fine tan tones of the bog, 
as they fade into silvery white where the sun reflects from smooth spears. Over on the distant hillside, the pines, navy blue under cloud shadows, hummed in the wind like bassoons. Distant and muted cornets sang clear in the maples, and all about the feathery heads of the olive swamp cedars, you caught the faint shrilling of fifes if you would listen intently. Now and then, the glockenspiel tinkled in mellow yellow notes among the dry reeds on the marge, but these echoed but familiar runes. The tan white bog grass that is so wild it never heard the swish of scythe sang soft and sibilant an elfin song of the lonely and untamed. With the singing of the wind into the tender spring of the south side, the day grew cold with clouds. The sky was no longer softly blue, but grey and chilling. The pond lost its sparkle and grew purple and numb with cold. And all among the bare limbs you heard the song of the promise of snow. But the clouds stopped at a definite line in the west and at setting the sun dropped below this and set a golden flood rolling through the trees that mark the boundary between field and pond, lighting up all the bog with glory and gilding the muskrat teepees and the tall bog grass and the distant trees across the water till all the sere and withered leaves were bathed in serenity, as softly and serenely bright as if the golden age had come to us all. In the wise the crystal day, with its sheltered exultation of spring and its grey promise of winter's snow, all fused into the one golden delight of sunset glory, marched on over the western hills, trailing paths of gilded shadow, behind it along which one walked the homeward way, as if into the perfect day. The lonesome spot in all the pasture, the one which the winter had made most vacant of all, is the corner where hangs the great grey nest of the white-faced hornets, its door stands hospitably open, but it is no longer thronged with burly burghers roaring to and fro on business that cannot wait. It has wide enough for half a dozen to go and come at the same time, yet they use to jostle one another continually in this entrance. So great was the throng of workers, and so vigorous the energy that burbled within them, while the warm sun of an August day shines a white-faced hornet is as full of pent forces, striving continually to burst him, as a steam fire engine is when the city is going up in flame and smoke and the fire chief is shouting orders through the megaphone and the engineer is jumping her for the honour 
of the departments and the safety of the community. He burbles and bumps and buzzes and bursts, almost in just the same way. It is no wonder that people misunderstand such roaring energy, driving home sometimes to fine a point, and speak of Vespa Malculata and his near of kin, the Yellow Jackets, and even the polite and retiring common black wasp with dislike. In this, the genial Ettrick Shepherd, high priest of the goodwill of the open world, does him, I think, much wrong. Oh, God's creatures, the wasp, he says, is the only one that is eternally out of temper. There's no such thing as pleasing him. This opinion is so universal that there is little use in trying to controvert it. And yet these white-faced hornets, which I have not known, if not closely, at least on terms of neighbourliness, do not seem to merit this opprobrium. That they are hasty I do not deny. They certainly brook no interference with their right to a home and the bringing up of the family, but I do not call that a sign of ill temper. I think it is patriotism. Probably the trouble with most of us is that we have happened to come into quite literal contact with white face after the fashion of one of the early explorers of the country about Massachusetts Bay. Obadiah Turner, the English explorer and journalist, thus chronicles the adventure in the quaint phraseology of the year 1629. Let go on the even tenor of his home building and homekeeping way. Whiteface is another creature. One of his kind used to make trips to and from my tent all one summer, and we got to be good neighbours. At first I viewed him with distrust and was inclined to do him harm, but he dodged my blow and without deigning to notice it, landed plump on a housefly that was rubbing his forelegs together in congratulatory manner on the tent roof. He had been mingling with germs of superior standing. Without doubt, this housefly, but his happiness over the success of the event was a brief duration. There came from his wings just one tenuous screech of alarm, followed by an ominous silence of as brief duration. Then came the deep roar of the hornet's propellers as he rounded the curve through the tent door and gave her full speed ahead on the home road. An hour later, he was with me again, had captured another fly almost immediately, and was off. He came again many times a day, and a day after day, till I began to know him well and follow his flights with the interest of an old friend. He never bothered me or anyone else. 
He had no time for men. The capture of houseflies was his vocation, and it demanded all his energy and attention. In fact, that he might succeed it was necessary, that he should put his whole soul into earnest endeavour, for he was not particularly well equipped for his work. He had neither speed nor agility, as compared with his quarry. And if house flies can hear and know what is after them, the roar of his machinery, even at slower speed, must have given them ample warning. It was like a freighter seeking to capture torpedo boats. They could turn in a circle of a third the radius of his and could fly three miles to his one. Yet he was never a minute in getting one. I think they simply took him for an enlarged edition of their own kind, and never knew the difference until his mandibles gripped them. He used to go bumbling and budding about the tent in a near-sighted excitement that was humorous to the onlooker. He didn't know a fly from a hole in the tent pole, and there was a tack in the ridge pole whose head he captured in exultation and let go in a sort of slow wonder every time he came in. He got to know me as part of the scenery and didn't mind lighting on top of my head in his quest, and he never thought of stinging me. I timed his visits one sunny, still day, and found that he arrived once in 40 seconds. But this was only under most favourable weather conditions. A cloud over the sun delayed him, and in wet weather he was never to be seen. His method with the flying hand was direct and effective. The first buzz was followed by the snip-snip of his shear-like maxillaries. You could hear the sound and immediately see the gauzy wings flutter slowly to the tent floor. If the fly kicked much his legs went in the same way. Then Whiteface took a firmer grip on his prize and was off with him to the nest. The beeline is spoken of as a model of mathematical directness, but the laden bee seeking the hive makes no straighter course than did my hornet to his nest in the berry bush down in the pasture. Flies were plentiful, and knowing how many hornets there are in a nest, I expected at first that he would bring companions and perhaps overwhelm my hospitality with mere numbers, but he did nothing of the kind. I have an idea that he was detailed to the fly-catching work, just as other workers were busy gathering nectar and honeydew, for the young and others, still, were nest and comb building. Later in the summer, another one did come, but I am convinced that he happened on the other game's preserve by accident, and was not invited. The two between them must have captured thousands of flies and carried them off alive to their nest.
And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you enjoyed the little journey through the forest. I also hope that you're feeling drowsy or a little bit tired. In the meantime, I'll be working on bringing you another episode of the Boy to Sleep podcast. But until then, good night.